word be a blessing to us. Let's seek it from God. Father, we pray that your word would be a blessing. We pray that as we've sung this song, we'd be reminded about some of the things that were mentioned in it uh, as we look at this passage today. And may we be reminded again that you will sustain us, though we be aliens and strangers in this world. For the sake of Jesus Christ, who himself had no place to lay his head, may you accept our prayers for the sake of Christ. Amen. Verse Samuel 23, we are looking at the exploits of David. We've been considering him ever since his battle with, well, even before that, as he was anointed as king back in chapter 16. We're at chapter 23. We're going to read those verses there as David saves the city of Caleb. But what we're looking at is a very, I think, important, encouraging thing for us, and that is that God sustains us uh, as is alienated, and uh, as those who are strangers in the world, as Christians, and as God's people throughout the ages. So we look at 1 Samuel 23. We read from God's word, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Cala and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Cala. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Cala against the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Cala, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Cala, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul summoned all the people of war to go down to Caleb to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And then David... Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. And David and his men, who were about 600 arose and departed from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the expedition, and David rewarded, remained, I should say, in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zip. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Zip at Horish. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of, my, of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. And the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Achillah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. 
And David said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I'll go with you, and if he's in the land, I'll search him out among the thousands of Judah. And he arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come. Well, the Philistines had made a raid against the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. We do thank God for his word today. We mentioned a little bit, Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last week that, and we can sense that here in this passage today, and, and you can sense that in your own lives at times, uh, that uh, this mentality of being, a, being one against the world can be very striking, can be very discouraging for uh, God's people. And David certainly comes off here in this passage as someone who in many regards, even though he has 600 men around him, as alienated. Not a lot of people. And yet, as we even sang a moment ago, God ends up sustaining those who sense that it's them against the world in crime. He sustains the alienated. He sustains his people. He sustains Christians. He sustains his anointed. And, and we need that encouragement as we walk down life's pathway uh, as we take on those things that we have to take, as we take on the daunting task of parenting in a world where the culture wants to determine the creed rather than the creed influenced by God's blessing, the culture. So we want to take a look a little bit this morning, focus on how the Lord sustained David as the alienated one in three different places, in Caleb, in Sif, and in Maon. And I hope that as we look at this that way, that this sustenance can also encourage us in our lives when we have confessed Christ, when we again have had the focus put not on ourselves or the power of the culture or power of the evil one, but on Christ himself. So first we look at God's sustenance in Cala for the alienated. All these places that we mentioned are in the land of Judah. And that's part of the place where, Judah, where David belonged. He was of Judah, after all. He belonged here. And yet, he doesn't feel at home here. He doesn't feel at home in any of these places. Our passage shows us that in all these places and contexts, he and his men are more like strangers. They're more like aliens than men who have found that country to which they belong. And we see that in the encounter that takes place in Cala when the men of David speak about the fear that they have as they live in Judah. If it's bad enough for us to go down to Cala, where the Philistines are, I mean, if it's bad enough here, I should say, how about when we're in 
that place where the Philistines are also against those people in Cala. They live where they belong, but they, they live like people who don't belong. It's as if they live like aliens in their own country. What is it, though, that calms their fear amidst this alienation? Well, it's God's word directing their paths, isn't it? They get assured when the word of God comes into their lives as David inquires of the Lord. Cale is under attack by the Philistines, and the blessings that they have that brings calm to their fear is really threefold here. And it's something similar to what we saw last week, because in this passage, as we've read it, we see that they have the word of the Lord, they have the priesthood in the person of Abiathar, they have the mediation of the priesthood, and they've got the true king of the land. Even Jonathan acknowledges that. Even Saul has to admit this. He's the true anointed of the Lord. And so this union of, like we even heard in our form that we read, you know, where Christ is this teacher, priest, and, and, uh, and king, this union of the word, of the priesthood, of the true kingship, is on their side. They sense alienation, but look who's on their side. And it's because they have that union on their side that they'll know victory and salvation and the peace of heart that they need. It's that combination that brings salvation to this city as well. And in saving the city, it paralyzes or it parallels the kind of saving that Saul did when he was legitimate back in 1 Samuel 14, 48 where he delivers Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. Of course, now as we're here, we've got a different Saul and we've got David in the play. And now David's approach, of course, is in contrast to Saul's dealing with Kayla and David. And we see a little bit more of that here, which is similar to what we saw last week about the contrast of the kings. Saul doesn't consult the word at all. And he takes no delight in the salvation of Kayla. In fact, he's willing to destroy what God saved through the true anointed one. And you notice whom he seeks to consult. He doesn't consult the word of the Lord. He's, he consults the word of men. And in the process, he gains for himself a false sense of security. Throughout this whole time, he's Okay, yeah, now I can see that the Lord's with me now. And later on, I'll make sure that you got this all right. So he has this false sense of security. But it's, it is false because he hasn't consulted, like David did, the word of the Lord. Plenty of people take security in what they're doing, have a clear conscience in what they're doing by making false confessions that in their conscience, God is pleased with them, even though what they're doing is contrary to the Word of God. They follow the culture, and they're comfortable there. 
And that's a great temptation. I've had a lot of chances over this week uh, to, to talk with different people. I was out in Vulcan, South Dakota for uh, a classes meeting within the CRCNA. And talking with those people and just remembering the times when I was there as well in the, in the Christian Reformed Church, how much the culture has impacted the battle that goes on in the Church of Jesus Christ. Com compare it now to the year 2000, when I was in that midst as well. And these people are battling, what they're battling is within the church, but what they're battling is what they have is how the culture has impacted the church. How the culture has determined the creed rather than the creed transforming the culture. And really not the culture so much as the hearts of people unto salvation and subservience and bending the knee to Christ. They follow the world and not the word. And it leaves them open to... to but nothing more than unnecessary failure and frustration. Life's hard enough. It's hard enough. And then you make it worse by not following the ways of God. I mean, take, take David, for example. We find his, he's in some unenviable positions. And here's one of them. Despite the measure of deliverance that the people have come to experience at Calah, where the hand of the Lord has evidently been at work in David, the people of Caleb are willing to betray him. We certainly know Jesus Christ like that, don't we? He faced that kind of same suffering. Though in the right, he suffers. Because that can happen, doesn't it? That when you make the right decision, if you make the right decision in your family's uh, lies. You can be the bad guy. And we don't like being the bad guy. But sometimes making the right decision isn't the popular decision. Jesus Christ was the righteous one perfectly. And he faced that same kind of suffering and betrayal. The very one who would dine with him turns on it. You know, betrayal, the lack of dependability was his to know as, as the one who, who came to his own and his own would receive him not. It would also appear that the gates of this city of betrayal are going to betrayal, prevail against this Christ. Also thinks it doesn't appear to be any escape to this for this remnant, the 600 of righteousness. It's me against the world. Yet there was a means of escape. And it once again came in the very place where salvation was found. It was found in the word of the Lord on which David rested. He inquired of the Lord rather than the words of men, on which Saul rested. These gates were not going to prevail against David. David would not remain in this city. He knew that wasn't the lasting city for him. 
there was something better in store for him than this city of betrayal, a better city to be sure. David must indeed go to, from place to place, right? We see that. Just hopscotching around. But at least he wasn't trapped in the city that has no lasting place for him. Those gates aren't prevailing. It doesn't look enviable, but you'd rather be in his spot because he's following the right. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Christ was the ultimate wanderer. And his, his humiliation and suffering and betrayal spoke volumes when it came to his alienation. You want to talk about somebody who had the world against him. When you feel like the world's against you, if you're a Christian, think about your Savior. All were against him, ultimately. To such an extent that he was taken to what seemed to an inescapable end at the cross by the plots of humanity, of depraved humanity, church and state, Jew and Gentile, but his reliance remained on the word of God. He was still in the better place. You could have the world against you, but are you in a better place? You are if you're relying on the word of God. Thank God that Jesus did that for his own sake, but also for the sake of of all those here who belong to him and all those who belong to him throughout the age. We sense that alienation ourselves when we're followers of Christ. Because Christians are aliens. After all in scripture, because we're waiting for a better country. We're waiting, waiting for a better city whose builder is God. This isn't the best. And there are many times as a Christian that we feel like fish out of water. It's us against the world. But that shouldn't surprise us as followers of Christ, the son of David. It's super tempting to just, to just belong to the world. It's comfortable. Instead of wanting to belong to the Lord. Because having the world against you is not appealing. And yet when the word is opened, then we find the rescue that we need. God's going to sustain the alienated in Christ. Even if the world finds you odd, it's okay, you're in a better place when you're following Christ. We also see that sustenance in the desert of Ziph. Again, we see the contrast between two kings on whom does Saul place his trust. Again, it's the enemies of David uh, upon those who would betray him. And yet, what do we gain from reading this? What do we learn from Saul? Saul, in seeking this counsel and assurance in those who betray David, is self-betrayed. 
and his son sees that. Jonathan says that even Saul knows that God is, uh, that David is the true king of God's people. Saul's viewed as the one who not only follows the word of the betrayers, but he betrays himself by, by trying to work against the plans of God and his anointed. That's just delusional. That's just shooting yourself in the foot. He even looks at David as if he were the devil himself. He uses the word crafty for him. He says he's a crafty one. Well, that's the very word that's described of the devil in the Garden of Eden, that that serpent was the craftiest of all creatures. He aligns David with the devil. And when we're followers of the enemies of God, the trusted and, and the true anointed of Jesus Christ, When I, what I meant to say was when we're, when, we're, when we're following the enemies of God, we see everything wrong. When we're reading this about David, we say, oh, David's a good guy, Saul's a bad guy. But Saul sees himself as a good guy, and David is a bad guy. And that's what happens in the world. We see good as evil, and we see evil as good when we're, we're not... Christ. We see as the Pharisees did the work of, of Jesus as the work of the devil and evil spirits instead of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we do that all the time in the culture in which we live. The life of family as instituted by God is outdated and outmoded. We need something better. Marriage is old-fashioned. Marriage is a ball and chain. Marriage needs to be redefined. How God has created people. That has to change. We didn't get to choose what gender we are. And you say, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, but that's, that's what goes on. Marriage is, is for the old-fashioned. Submission. Christian submission. Right? That's, that's especially the way it's God, that's, that's slavery. I'm not submitting to anyone. It's my way or the highway. Salvation by grace alone, that, that's a swipe at the goodness of people and religions. Listening to my parents, that's for nerds. Listening to those that are over me, that's for nerds. Going ahead of the Lord, that's the right, right way to do it. Everybody's going to be saved in the end. Sin doesn't have any consequences. Christ isn't the true God. There are many gods. There's no one God or there's no God at all. It's delusional. And all it does is shoots us in the foot. It's self-betraying and deep down inside, as Romans 1 would tell us, we know better. Like Saul knew better. Don't we say that about people who've grown up in the church, been part of our families, and then they go a different way, and we say they shouldn't, they know better. Saul's not different. And in contrast, look at where David goes. He doesn't get it from those who, who seek to betray. He doesn't get direction that way, but from those who seek to strengthen in the Lord with a word from the Lord. That's what Jonathan does. Jonathan speaks the truth here. We know as readers of the story that, that what Jonathan says is the truth and that this is the word of the Lord. Jonathan strengthens David with the, with the word. He encourages him in the word. What a difference between the betrayers and Jonathan. 
And, and Jonathan is viewed as the loyal friend. He makes a covenant with the true anointed of the Lord. As the loyal friend, he speaks the reliable word of God. And, and isn't that what we should want? Not less of that, but more of that. And to take advantage of that. Jonathan goes home, David doesn't. David continues to be the wanderer, that alien in his country, waiting a better time. It hasn't come yet. But at least he's got the promise. He's got the reliable word of God as opposed to the word of those who portray the promise. He, he might be alienated, but he's still in the better place. And so being alienated for the sake of Jesus may not seem very enviable. But when you've got the Word of God on your side and you've got that Bible open, it'll sustain you. And the promise of God of something better ahead will sustain you. And that's better than relying on the false assurances and anti-Christian guidance that people seek wouldn't you want more of that and not less? You see a remarkable underscoring also in, of the sustenance in Maon. And I know our time is running, but I, I want to get through this. We see another movement to another desert area. And certainly it isn't a place of fertility and, and, and blessing that one would expect for the, the anointed of the Lord, but it's another wilderness triumph. And we read that he's headed there with to the rock in the desert with 600 men. And we might find that terminology funny, you know, that he's heading to the rock in the desert. But back in, in Judges, there was another 600 men, and they remained at the rock of Rimmon. And in that case, Judah attacked Benjamin for their unfaithfulness. And that was done by Israel under the legitimate consultation of God. And so at that point you had a legitimate pursuit of Judah, who was of David, against Benjamin, which was of Saul. And that led to the decimation down to 600. But now you see what we have happening. Now there are 600 men who go down to the rock of Maon. This time it's Benjamin who consults betrayers. And they're chasing Judah the righteous who consults the Lord. And so things have flipped. Judah, the, the true, looks like a hopeless cause like the false Benjamin of Judges 19-21 to because Benjamin the false is chasing them. So, you know, it's like this, you know, you're watching this episode of some movie or you're into, into it and you say, who will triumph? How will things turn out in the end? Will the plans of the unrighteous prevail over the righteous? And you kind of know when you're watching the movies, and oh, that's not going to happen. Somehow the, the righteous are going to get away, going to get away escaping. And that's what happens here. Jesus, the Holy One, is condemned as the blasphemous. Christians called by grace are accused of snobbery and pride and bigotry and racism and hatred because they say Christ is the only way to salvation. And when Christians love the Lord by putting purity and promoting purity in marriage, they're accused of hatred. Parents try to show the right way to their kids and they're accused of being intolerable. 
Will the spirit of falsehood prevail? You really think so? Look at the stone of escape. The stone reminds us that falsehood isn't going to prevail. The smooth rock, the rock of escape. It's the same name of the rocks that David took to deliver Israel from Goliath in 1 Samuel 17.40. God's will for David ultimately in Christ prevails. God sustains the alien. It may seem like there's no escape. And no end from the temptation and trials and evils of life. But God will preserve his people. He preserves his plans. He makes a way of escape. He will work it out for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And we see this most clearly in the righteous Savior Jesus Christ, who though he died, yet he lives. And who provides for us that very escape unto eternal life and from all the temptations that come our way. God sustains the alienated. We're reminded and assured of that in baptism. We see it at Cala, Ziph, Man, and at the cross of Christ. And you can rest assured that he will provide the sustenance for you as well when for the sake of Christ and in Christ, even though you're a stranger and alien in the world, you belong to him. And you have the hope of better things ahead that God has promised you. That strengthened David long ago, that strengthened Christ long ago, who for the glory that awaited him endured the cross. There are better things ahead for us, beloved. And they're in Christ. And that's our encouragement, and that's our peace, and that's our strength. When our trust is in the word and the work of God who sustains us in Jesus. Even though we might be aliens and strangers in the world. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this word and pray that it may be a blessing to our lives as we respond now and throughout our lives in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 296, 1, 3, 4, 5, and 8. Thrice blessed be Jehovah. 1, 3, 4, 5, and 8. So 1, 3 through 5, and then 8 of 296.